The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Home builders. They were one of his favorite sector in 2017, and he still favors the home builders. Let's find out what David Kudla has in mind. He's the founder and the chief executive officer and chief investment strategist for Mainstay Capital Management, helping to manage more than $2 billion of assets. He can be followed on Twitter at David underscore Kudla. That's K-U-D-L-A. All right, David underscore Kudla. What's your thesis on home builders for 2018? Well, we still believe that there is the, the long-term secular story. There is the cyclical story. And we're running through the event-driven story that's uh, driven up um, some of the sales in home building here recently and with some of the suppliers, Home Depot Lowe's, that are uh, facilitating the, you know, the, the, the rebuild and so forth from the hurricanes. But if we look at where we are in the cycle and where we continue to set new records. You know, we had a 10-year high in September on new home sales, continue to grow in October and November. We've got new housing starts for single-family homes at an expansion high, existing home sales at an expansion high. The housing market index is at an expansion high. Uh, really, the, the home builders are firing on all eight cylinders, and we think that continues as we move into 2018 because we think we have a continuing uh, a robust build cycle, uh, economy that's doing well, and with tax reform, economy that could even be doing a little bit better. All right. Having said that, if you've got an investment that has returned 60% mm-hmm. year to date, wouldn't you take some of that off the table and just wait? In PEM, this is, you're always asking me this one. Uh, Because no one ever tells you when to sell. And I understand that you make your money when you actually buy the investment, just like you make your money in a house when you buy the house, although you Mm -hmm. don't think that way when you do so. Mm -hmm. Well, we see that, you know, when we look at where we are in the cycle, we're about, just about through mid-range. The home builders... Uh, uh, from peak to trough, we're maybe halfway through that expansion, and we're coming off a significant low from the Great Recession. So uh, we we see that there's further to go as long as we still have a good economy. Uh, there is pent-up demand for new homes. We have um, the uh, current supply is only uh, 3.4 months. 
of inventory, which, you know, it is still a strong seller's market. So we, we want to continue to stay with this sector. Okay, so that if you're invested in the iShares uh, construction, I believe it's the uh, home construction ETF, ITB, that's yes. the uh, the calculation I was doing, a 60% uh, increase uh, so far this year for, for ITB. Okay, home builders, that gets a gold star. Tell me about investment opportunities in places like Europe, Japan, and emerging markets. Well, when we look at where we are in our cycle here in the U.S., uh, the economy uh, doing well, we think we'll do well into next year, 25 to 3% growth. We have very strong earnings, but we're at, when we uh, look at a, a, a ratio that we use more and more in this industry, the CAPE ratio, cyclically, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, uh, we're at about 31, which is about a 16-year high, uh, versus when we look at emerging markets and Europe and and some of the other areas of the world were at, at 15 to 20. So they're more attractively priced, but even more importantly, we're seeing uh, robust growth in those areas now, GDP improving, economic data improving, earnings improving, uh, and unemployment coming down. You know, a, da- a data point that just came out, November U.S. exports were up 10.3%. That's the fastest pace in six years. And what that speaks to is what is going on around the rest of the world. We talk about synchronized global growth. That's compared to two years ago when our exports were down 10%. So, so that's what's happening in emerging markets in these developed markets and how well those economies are moving along now and what that will translate into in terms of opportunities in their stock markets. Is it possible that some of that export strength could be the result of an 8% decline in the value of the U.S. dollar against the G10 partners? Absolutely. Absolutely, that's part of it. Will that that continue? Uh, I think that we continue with some dollar weakness. We don't see the dollar strengthening uh, significantly against the dollar index, against the euro. Uh, We think we continue with dollar weakness. Okay, dollar weakness. I want to ask you about one particular investment idea, the Columbia India Small Cap ETF. What is it that draws you to it? Uh, it, it is that we like emerging markets and that we like uh, the opportunity of, of small cap companies uh, in emerging markets, uh, the, in India being one of those. And there's any specific reason? Or, I mean, you know, you like it. I understand that. Otherwise, you wouldn't buy it. But, I mean, is there some fundamental reason why this particular one or why you like small caps in India? Uh, the, it's the transformation of the economy. What uh, Prime Minister Modi has been doing there in transforming the economy, they're going through literally transformational change. And we've seen that translate into opportunity, deregulation, opportunity, specifically in small companies, is evidenced by the the rise we've had in that ETF during our holding period and and certainly over the past year. The ARC Web X.0 ETF, uh, it is, uh, well, a a conglomeration of, of tech companies. You've got Tesla, Netflix, as well as Twitter and Bitcoin Investment Trust. You still like this? Uh, we do. Uh, in fact, uh, when we look at the technology space, because you'll, you'll often hear people say they like technology across the board, but we've seen uh, a peak in, in chip sales. We've seen uh, some areas that aren't doing as well in technology, but when we look at e-commerce and the Internet, 
that is an area where there's a secular growth story that continues, uh, not only domestically but abroad. And we think that's the real opportunity and the reason that we like specifically that ETF, ARKW. Well, the uh, shares of uh, ARKW, they're up nearly 88% uh, this year. All right, um, David, here's your chance to uh, to fall on your sword. What is the one mistake you regret in investing over the last 12 months? Oh, that's easy. I wish I would have loaded up on Bitcoin 12 months ago. Really? Or or Ethereum, or Litecoin, or Ripple, or uh, the list goes on. And and obviously, uh, that's an easy one uh, in hindsight. But uh, certainly, there there was a you know in terms of an outsized gain, tremendous opportunity there. But um, if we bring it back to just the markets in general. Uh, probably that we didn't uh, significantly overweight large cap growth even more uh, in terms of our portfolios from a tactical standpoint because large cap growth dominated in 2017. We got to leave it there. Thanks very much and Happy New Year to you. David Kudla, Chief Executive, Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay Capital. A new question for 2018 is, what did you watch on Facebook last night? Shira Ovide is our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. She covers technology and can be followed on Twitter at Shira Ovide, S-H-I-R-A-O-V-I-D-E. See, I tried to get through all the details because it's kind of tough, you know, when you just say it. But maybe Facebook is going to take care of that because everyone can be the star of their own TV show with Facebook, can't they? Yes and no. So uh, Mark Mark Zuckerberg, sorry, the Facebook CEO, has said for a few years now that he believes web video is the future of Facebook and the Internet in general. And you can see that, right? If you look in your Facebook feed now, odds are there'll be a lot of web videos in there, whether you like it or not. And uh, so a few months ago, Facebook um, basically changed strategy a little bit or added a strategy to its web video initiative. It started this new tab that's called Watch that is basically trying to be more of a TV-like destination where it has longer form videos, things that are more like the kinds of shows you see on cable television. And Facebook hopes you go there, you hang out, you chat with your friends about, hey, it wasn't this a really cool video about some sur- surfing program, and um, they're trying to build both community and grab more of our time. All right. If they're trying to grab more of your time, they've got someone who's trying to, uh, well, collar you, right, is uh, Fiji Simo. Who is Fiji Simo? And maybe just describe what her challenge is. Right. So Fiji Simo's profiled in our sort of gadfly year in review pieces. She is the vice president of product at Facebook. She's been there about uh, eight years and she's responsible for some of the most high profile initiatives at the company. Uh, She was hired at first to sort of help them expand their ads on smartphones, which is basically the most important innovation at Facebook in the last decade. And now she's responsible basically for all video in Facebook, including this new watch tab. And look, it's a big bet for Facebook that they're trying to uh, become a little bit more like TV, get more of our attention, get more of advertisers' money. And it's not going to be an easy thing to do. And she's kind of at the center of all this. 
But Facebook has tried this previously, right, with a different strategy. Right. So if you listened to people like Mark Zuckerberg last year, the only thing they talked about was live video, that they wanted people like you and me, Pim, uh, celebrities like the chef Gordon Ramsay, news organizations like CNN. They wanted everybody to broadcast videos live on Facebook. The famous example being there was a you know this mom, uh, the Chewbacca mom, she was called, who put on this kind of toy Facebook, uh, sorry, toy Chewbacca Star Wars mask and basically posted a video of herself live cackling hysterically as she wore this ridiculous mask and it was this viral hit and those were the kinds of things that Facebook couldn't shut up about last year and this year nobody talks about live really I, I mean I'm exaggerating slightly but it does seem Why? like I don't know they exactly. can't control it well, I think that is part of the issue. So uh, in addition to things like Chewbacca Mom making the headlines last year for Facebook Live Video, the other things were people broadcasting live videos of violent acts, including this guy in Cleveland who murdered people and basically broadcast live his confession on Facebook. And these were the kinds of things that alarmed people, certainly outside of Facebook, that you've created this live video platform that gives people an incentive to broadcast the worst of humanity and get attention for it. Um, and maybe they found that they couldn't control something like live video. Based on your reporting and speaking with your sources, do you believe that Facebook understands the responsibility that they would take on if indeed they could be held liable for these kinds of things being broadcast on their network? I think there has been a slow awakening inside of Facebook the last year or so just understanding how powerful their platform is to shape what people think, what people read or don't read, the views that get sent out into the world. Um, I think Facebook initially didn't understand the ramifications of what they were doing and maybe didn't think about the potential downsides of things like Facebook Live in advance. And I think that's starting to change slowly and reluctantly, but there's also no easy solution for Facebook. What does it do? Does it ban certain kinds of posts? I don't know that we want Facebook being a censor either. So they're really in a tough spot. But yes, they are recognizing that they have responsibility for this powerful platform that they created. Yeah, you're not allowed to shout fire in a crowded theater. Right. I mean, there's got to be some kind of incentive or some kind of uh, punishment if you do those kinds of things. And look, right now, Facebook and, and this goes for Google and others, too. They're mostly self-policing. They're creating the rules of the road on their own Internet services. And the question is and does, changing them when they want to changing them at whim when it feels like it need when they feel like they need to. Absolutely. And the question is, will regulators in the U.S. or in Brussels or other countries around the world start to demand um, start to basically impose more order from the top on these companies? And they certainly don't want that to happen. I would say also, never mind governments, what about advertisers? Because isn't that really the only way that Facebook makes money is selling ads? Yes, 97% of Facebook's revenue, 98%, sorry, comes from advertisements. So it is definitely true that advertisers collectively are a powerful voice on Facebook. And you've seen them both on Facebook and places like YouTube basically revolt when it's become clear that those 
platforms have made bad decisions that, you know, put their commercials next to terrorist videos and things like that. Um, and, and that does spur change at these companies because it affects them in their wallet. Yeah, well, that would that would certainly get their uh, attention. And Facebook has also run up against these kinds of issues when it comes to politicians, political campaigns. They even send out people to teach those political operatives how to best use this platform to their own gain. Yeah, and I think our colleagues at Bloomberg News have written some great stories in the last few months about Facebook's role in helping political campaigns, including in places like the Philippines, um, where maybe we don't want the government of the Philippines being smart about how to use Facebook to manipulate the electorate or to harass uh, critics of the administration, right? So, look, all these tech companies, Twitter, Google, Facebook, they do help political campaigns and political leaders um, understand how best to use their platforms. And that goes for journalists too, right? Facebook has a, a large organization that helps journalists figure out how to disseminate their stories on Facebook and other places. Um, but yeah, there's a big difference between helping journalists circulate stories and helping uh, candidates figure out how to tailor their messages and helping dictators in places like the Philippines. Indeed. Thanks very much. Shira Oviday, thank you very much. Uh, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, all things technology. You can follow Shira on Twitter at Shira Oviday. And Happy New Year to you. Always a pleasure. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Small businesses in the United States, they make up nearly 99% of U.S. employer firms, 64% of net new private sector jobs, nearly 50% of private sector employment. However you look at it, small business is important and crucial to the health of the U.S. economy. Karen Mills is a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School and former small business administrator Small Business Administration for the SBA for under President Barack Obama from 2009 to 2013. Karen Mills, thank you very much. Joining us from Boston, you can be followed on Twitter at Karen G. Mills. Hi, uh, Tim. Hi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, let's talk about a, a small business and the tax overhaul plan. I wonder if we could maybe just start with one aspect of it that is uh, related to the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and this is the individual uh, mandate. Is there anything in the bill that would change the way small businesses have to uh, uh, offer or uh, provide for the health insurance of their employees? Well, I'm glad you started with uh, the tax bill, but overall, now that I'm a faculty member, I did end-of-year grading on the Trump administration, and um, the total report card is three C's and a D, but one of the C's is for taxes. Um, the health care piece, as you know, was sort of 
tagged on there for political reasons. And it's really too bad because it turns out that about 4 million people in the Obamacare um, markets are small business owners who are buying individual coverage. And we don't know what's going to happen um, because we don't really understand the impact of the mandate, taking away the mandate uh, on pricing. But in the last two years, there was a J.P. Morgan study that came out this year that said it has gone up very little for small business owners who are buying on the individual marketplace. So it is possible that that will go away. Very few small businesses, I think, will um, choose not to buy coverage when they had before because their their employees are going to ask for it. And we're in tight labor markets now. And if employees aren't getting health care coverage, they're going to switch to a place that gives it to them. So I'm not sure that uh, this was worth doing and what it accomplished. Okay. And, and, and I don't want to get into too much about the, the ACA mandate uh, for uh, individual health care, but I, a lot of it I know had to do with the cost, the premium cost, and then the high deductibles. So they had some cases in which people looked at how much it was going to cost them to get health insurance, and they said, mm, you know what, uh, if my deductible is going to be 5000 why am I going to buy health insurance for something that I don't believe that I'm necessarily going to use. I really just wanted catastrophic care. Is that, I mean, that's at least the other side of the argument, correct? Well, as long as, you know, it's up to an individual what they're going to buy. But if they don't buy any health insurance, that puts them and their employer at risk. Because an employer, a small business like a family, and if one of your employees gets sick, I had small business owners tell me they went out of pocket themselves to help them. So, Employers want to provide health insurance because if somebody gets sick and they're not covered, it's everybody else that pays. So I think what has happened is that people actually have gotten used to Obamacare. You saw in a very short enrollment period, we had 9 million people sign up, more than anybody expected. So I think what's going to happen is that we've got a solution. I think people are still going to use it. All right. Let's focus now on another aspect of the tax overhaul. You mentioned family businesses, and I'm wondering if the increase in the ceiling for estate taxes will have a positive effect for for those kinds of uh, fi- financial, you know, organizations. I mean, if you're running a small business or have a a business that has a high level of assets that are going to be valued upon death, uh, will won't this be beneficial? You know, I think it actually will be beneficial. I'm all for family businesses. I think that this is an important part of, you know, the American heritage and that people um, have said that they want to be able to pay the tax once, not twice. And the estate tax is is a pretty tough tax. So I think this is going to um, be helpful to small businesses. Another piece, by the way, that's helpful is the accelerated depreciation. Um, It's an unusual sort of technical 
bit, but we did it twice during the Obama administration, and we found that actually did encourage people to buy a truck, you know, to buy some equipment, and that creates more jobs. Right. You get to write it off uh, much more much more quickly. Just a quick question to you. If you could redo any of the grades that you gave, you said the three C's and a D, anything you could do to increase the grade average? Give you about 20 seconds. Well, D is for deal maker. Trump has not proved to be a good deal maker, and there's so many deals on the table here in regulation reform, uh, in infrastructure, in giving tax breaks for training or having employers pay for college. He really missed a big opportunity um, to do bipartisan deals and bring big business to the table to do things that fundamentally helped our economy. One of the C's is for um, the economy as a whole. Nothing here struck changed what's going to happen going forward. So when you predict for 2018, how are we going to have an economy that really grows without some structural change? Well, maybe the grade will improve in 2018 from Karen Mills, Senior Fellow, Harvard Business School. Thanks for being with us. We know that millions of people are going to be gathering uh, in uh, Times Square in New York City for the ball drop to uh, usher in the new year. And also all around the world, people will be gathering in groups to uh, share the festivities. One thing that they will have in common, in addition to uh, looking to 2018, is security. And by some estimates, the physical security industry globally Uh, could end up being a $200 billion market. Here to tell us a little bit more about the security and the industry itself is Lou Palumbo. He is the director of Elite Intelligence and Protection. Lou, Happy New Year to you. Uh, You're going to be in Times Square, I understand. Yes, this is about my 25th consecutive year. I've uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, supporting various clients in Times Square for the New Year's Eve uh, celebration. Okay, so over the course of your career, I'm sure you've seen some big changes to security. What are some of the ones that you can highlight for us? Well, clearly after 9-11 and on the heels of these, um, I would say, rather commonplace incidents throughout the world and now our country, we've seen, seen a, uh, an increased presence of law enforcement especially in the form of tactical units. Post 9-11, they began to implement what we call high point men and observers, which are snipers. Um, I'm not divulging anything that the police commissioner, uh, O'Neill, hasn't already spoken to. Um, We've seen the perimeters pushed out, choke points hardened, um, increase of overall deployment for this this event, uh, taking control of the subways, shutting down garages in proximity of Times Square, uh, welding the caps for the um, street uh, gases to escape from Con Ed. We've done everything, removal of garbage pails, post office boxes, everything you could possibly imagine that could represent some form of a delivery system for a device or even an individual. So we've seen consistently post 9-11 a continuous hardening of targets. Now, this hardening of targets, it comes with a cost, right? Absolutely. You know, and, and I know people ask me all the time about that. You know, what's the budget like? And my response to them is the budget is rather fluid. 
because based on an event or or an episode the week before or even the evening of could change the entire approach of a law enforcement agency, not just locally, but through our federal agencies and the intelligence community. And what I say to people is, how do you monetize the value of someone's life? You can't. And the thing I do want to say, which I think people should be mindful of, whatever the amounts of money that are being allocated in budget to secure these events, whether it's St. Patty's Day Parade, the Halloween festivity on October 31st in Lower Manhattan, uh, St. Patrick's Thanksgiving, Times Square, the police department seems to have a formula that they've been able to put into place that we have not had an incident. So I know that there's a lot of money involved. As we know, just listening to when President Trump comes into Trump Tower, they estimate it's a million dollars a day. It's hard to give a definitive number, but whatever that number is, it seems to be the right number because they seem to have the deployment down. They seem to have the perimeter properly constructed. And I don't mean just from north to south and east to west, even vertically. They have this down pretty much pat. And there's no other police department in the world that has the ability to do something like a New Year's Eve deployment because of the 37,000 sworn officers they have in the city. Lou, we understand and, and uh, of course, are grateful for all of their efforts, and not only uh, in New York, but around the, the country and around the world. You have law enforcement officials working during these times to secure the environments. Is, what do you say, though, if, if someone comes back and says, look, these threats that you are guarding against, they are they may be threats against specific uh, areas. In other words, as horrible as a potential attack might be, it is not going to cause the country to come to a complete stop. Even We found that even with 9-11, that the country uh, rebuilt itself and went on. Is there a point at which you would say, gee, we want the news media, let's say, to offer less publicity to the people that perpetrate these things, uh, because it's not a physical attack that's going to uh, cripple the economy, but it, it becomes a psychological attack. Yes, that's correct. And, and one of the mechanisms that prevents the psychological attack from overcoming the citizens of this country or the residents of the state and city of New York is the reassurance that law enforcement is going to provide as safe an, as safe an environment as they possibly can. So I go back and say this again, you know, you know, I, I live by this philosophy, error on the side of caution. And that's a lot of what law enforcement does as well. And, and I repeat to you again, whatever they have implemented as far as planning and uh, methodology, it's working. So I don't know if there's a criticism, if that's what I'm sensing, that can be made or a question. No, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that, a criticism of, of, of their efforts. It was what can the non-law enforcement officials or even just regular people, give you about 10 seconds, what can regular people do in order to support all of your efforts? Basically, they, the first thing is if you see things that are out of the ordinary, report it, number one. Number two, try to develop this concept, what we call situational awareness. If you see individuals that are acting out of sync in your environment or packages are left or bags, please report them immediately to a local law enforcement agency. In addition, I would recommend that everybody abandon the practice of sticking earbuds in their ears, which is kind of commonly done. It's how we anesthetize ourselves to a lot Good of the point. noise. Well, I want to wish you a good point. Lou Palumbo, thank you very much, and uh, Happy New Year to you. Director of Elite Intelligence 
and protection about security on coming up New Year's Eve celebrations. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.